Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have sworn you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the, water, the rivers, they will not sweep you over. When you walk through the fire, I will not, you will not be burned. The flame will not set you ablaze. This morning, as you're singing this song, I'm asking you to put your faith whatever situation that's in front of you right now the Lord promise that's not the end he is he has the word of the end he will be with you and that's The altar is open. Come and kneel before him. Or you can, wherever you are, just put your faith into this word that we're singing now. And the word that he said in the prophet Isaiah, when you, when you cross the river, when the fire rises up, nothing wrong will happen to you. Let's sing with faith. Let's put all your hope, all your trust into our living Jesus. And this morning, you will walk with freedom. We will walk with deliverance. We will walk in a different path where God wants you to walk. This morning, I want to remind you that you are His. You not belong to the to the world. You not belong to anybody else. You belong to him. You are we are his. Let worship him with all your heart. And tune your situation to him. Hide me now one more time. Uh, the book of Nehemiah. Bible with you. Make use of the Bible nearby you in the seat in front of you there. Turn to page 342. <clears throat> I'm just going to read through chapter 1 of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned when he heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant who is praying before you day and night for your servant, the people of Israel. 
I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of his physician. The temple The book of Nehemiah begins at a particular place in the historical history of Israel when um, they have been scattered into exile. The walls of the city of Jerusalem have been broken down. The temple has been destroyed. In other words, the people of God had lost their identity and their destiny. They no longer knew who they were, and they no longer knew what they were to do. Nehemiah receives this word from those who have seen the city. And his response is to weep before the Lord and begin to cry out to God in prayer. Always a good response when you've lost sight of who you are and where you're going. And thus begins the process of the re-establishment of that identity and the re-engagement of their calling as the people of God. Twenty-three years ago, in a much less dramatic way, I began serving here as the pastor of Bethel Christian Fellowship. When I came here 23 and a half years ago, April 1st, 1990, those of you that were still around at that time remember that it was a time of of great pressure and challenge and difficulty for us as a congregation. And when I came and when I was called to come here, I was called with and given the task of helping us as a congregation rediscover our sense of identity and our sense and call of destiny. And when I came, we began to pray. In fact, for about four years, we prayed together as leadership and as congregants calling out to the Lord to help us rediscover what had been lost, what had been perhaps just we had strayed from our focus on and needed to once again pay attention to. Out of that time of prayer, out of that season of crying out to the Lord, the Lord began to help us rediscover that identity and that destiny. If you've got your bulletin, I want to invite you to pull out this particular insert. I'm going to take a moment to remind us of this calling that we have as a congregation. Our calling is to radiate life and joy as a house of prayer for all nations. There are two passages of Scripture that help us form a foundation for this calling. One is from Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. One of our our, our second pastor here, Sister Helen Jepson, had received a prophetic word towards the end of her ministry back in the early 60s. And the 
substance of that prophetic word was spoken here out of Isaiah 35 when she proclaimed over the congregation that the desert and the parched land will be glad and the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And like the rose, it will burst into bloom and it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. There's that life and joy radiating forth. The other scripture that the Lord has imprinted into the life of our body is found there in Isaiah chapter 56. It says, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, embedded in that calling, there are three strands that define our sense of identity and destiny. The first strand, that house, is that of inviting hospitality. In other words, we're a place to belong. This is a growing intercultural community that's welcoming strangers to become friends and friends becoming part of the family. Secondly, as a house of prayer, we are called into an intimate spirituality. We're a place to believe, a joyful community who is passionately pursuing God and hosting His presence. That's that. So if you think about a triangle, there's in, up, And then the out is that intentional missionality as a house of prayer for all nations, a place to become a life-giving community, living out God's mission to reach all peoples because we exist for those who aren't yet here, for the nations who've not yet joined us, who've not yet come, for the people whom God is calling and bringing to himself. So this is our identity. This is our destiny here at Bethel Christian Fellowship. Now, on the reverse side of that, you'll find our foundational principles and values. Because we build, or more accurately, Christ builds us on a foundation And that foundation is that we will stand for truth. We will establish our unity and our Christ-centered vision. We will depend on God in prayer. We will make disciples. We will value every member as a minister. We will equip and empower. We will be a force and not a fortress. And we will value healthy congregational life. Now what I want to say to you this morning here whether it's your first time here or you've been coming here for 40 years, these are not simply words on a page to us. This is actually life and truth to us. This is is what we seek to orient our life together as a congregation around. It's a lens through which we look at everything that we do together. We look through the lens of these foundational principles and values. Back in 1996, which for those of you who can do the math, that would be 17 years ago, we released, actually probably even a year or two before that, we kind of released these foundational principles and values into the life of the congregation. And this morning, what I'd like to do and what we're going to begin together, as Pastor Sam and I were were seeking the Lord about what it is that we felt like in this year to engage, the Lord would have us to speak about. He brought us back to these principles. We've entitled the sermon series that we are going to be doing together, Arak. Now, Arak is a Hebrew word which means to lay a foundation, to set in order or to prepare for battle. Isn't that interesting? It's laying a foundation, setting an order, and preparing for battle. And so what we're sensing in our spirit is that God 
we believe that the Lord wants to reestablish that sense of identity within us. Not that we've necessarily lost track of it, but we always need to come back and remember and reorient around who we are called to be so that we will be able to continue to re-engage our destiny, what we are called to do. Because as a friend of mine has said, and let me remind you of this, when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. The opposite is also the case. If you don't know who you are, you won't know what to do. Does this make sense? You, you tracking so far? Okay? It's beautiful sunshine. It's coming in the windows. The spirit of slumber is falling over the congregation. When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. We want to know who we are so we will know what to do. So we are going to reestablish this identity so that we will continue to re-engage our destiny. Principle number one, you've got it there for, before you. We will stand for truth. Our statement of faith is a living expression of the doctrinal foundations upon which we stand. It is a living expression of the doctrinal, the, 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 the things that we believe upon which we stand together here as a congregation. We are a confessional church. It means that we have a confession that we make, a series of things that we believe, and those are things that orient us towards about who we are and who we're called to be. I love this scripture in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners. All of us, in one way or another, those of us, and he's speaking specifically here about those who are not Jews, okay? So other than, if, if I correct here, other than Judy who Heisel, who's, who's a, born as a Jew, the rest of us who are Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but we are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too say, me too. Me too, we too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So one of the phrases that we use connected to this is being true to the word and alive in the spirit. Being true to the word and alive in in the Spirit. Now, if you think about it, and maybe in your church experience, or maybe just in your observation as you have lived life out, you have seen that there are congregations who are true to the Word, but not alive in the Spirit. Those congregations or those people, or maybe you know an individual who's very, you know, they, they know everything about the word, but there's no real life flowing through them. And therefore, that true to the word becomes sort of a dead orthodoxy, right? Understand what I'm talking about? Okay? Now, there are other folks in your experience and in mine and other situations and, and, and places where you see that there appears to be an incredible amount of life. There's this life in the spirit, and yet it seems disconnected or detached from anything that's rooting it or holding it down. And it becomes sort of a detached spirituality. And sometimes you end up in what I affectionately call the spirit of weird, okay? 
and you kind of end up over someplace disconnected from the Word of God. So what I want to remind us of as we talk about this first foundational principle of standing for truth is that we're standing for a living truth and that it is our commitment here at Bethel to hold both of those things together. True to the word, alive in the spirit. John 1 When we're talking about the Word, what are we talking about? Well, John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when we're talking about the Word of God, the first thing we're talking about here is we're talking about Jesus who is the living, eternal Word of God. And we are also talking about the Word of God, the Scripture, which it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Inspired is the Word The scriptures bear the breath of God. Just as Jesus bore the breath of God, the scriptures bear the breath of God. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, when it says the word of God, is it talking about Jesus? Is it talking about the scripture? And my answer would be yes. It's talking about the living and active word of God. It is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even to the dividing of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must, must give account. It's a very sobering scripture, isn't it? I'd like to take a few moments this morning just to unpack this a little bit more for us today. I think this is critical in our day and age because I think it wouldn't take too much evidence for us to look around us today and say, we, you know, as somebody has put it, we live as a culture at the crossroads and the signposts have fallen down. When you just look around, and I'm, I'm not talking about even any particular, like just the, the, the whole, if you look over the array, over if you look around culturally, not just here, but around the world, you will see the evidence, as Nehemiah did, of broken walls and destroyed temples of the Lord. And it does make us does it not? And our response is to cry out to the Lord. Say, God, help us. God, help us. So what is living truth? Do you remember when Jesus was brought before Pilate and they have this conversation it's a fascinating conversation, and I invite you to sometime read the entire conversation of what's going on. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting... I mean, Jesus... Oh, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you... I mean, he's, he's just utterly amazing, you know? He really is. And he has this conversation with Pilate in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his suffering. He has this conversation, and just one little piece of this in, from John 18... Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We were just singing 
Your kingdom shall reign over all the earth. Sing unto the ancient of days. None can compare with your matchless love. Sing unto the ancient days. That's who we're, what we're, you know, those words are not disconnected from, they're, they're connected to reality, true reality. That's why they're powerful when we sing them together and make those declarations. Because Jesus is saying, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Well, Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And here's Pilate's famous words, what is truth? Now, that's this very same question that your friends and your co-workers and the people at your school and the people in your workplace and in your neighborhood and maybe in your home and maybe even in your own heart this morning, you're asking this question, what is truth? Well, I don't know that I can fully answer that question this morning, but I'd like to give you some perspective. And this is something I've thought about a lot, and I, particularly when I was working on uh, my doctorate work and my dissertation, I, I was thinking ab- about this particular piece that I'm going to unfold for you again this morning. Some of you have heard this, but I'm going to remind you of it and, and give you some specific scriptures and hopefully maybe even some application to be thinking about. I want us to be thinking about these things, because if we're going to stand for truth, we've got to know what it is we're standing for, Okay. That makes kind of sense, right? So the Word of God is living. It's alive and active. What does it mean that it's living? Well, first of all, each generation over the last several years, last several generations, I should say, has been asking sort of a different question about truth. The generation that preceded me, the generation of my parents and the generation which kind of is known as the builder generation, the builder generation, when they were asking this question, what is living truth, the question they were asking about that truth is, is it right? Is it right? There's a right and a wrong. Okay? Two plus two always equals four, right? There's a, it's, it's an objectifiable thing. There is a right. So when we're thinking about truth, particularly in the builder generation, the question was, is it right? And so John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them. In other words, wash them, purify them, prepare them, clean them, um, uh, get them activated into who they are by the truth For your word is truth. Now this week as I was studying, I was looking through scripture, and if you look through the Gospels, sometimes just just look through the Gospels or go through a concordance and see how many times Jesus says these words. I tell you the truth. Or, in your authorized version, verily, verily. Right? When he says verily, verily, veritas, the Latin word, you know, I've got kids that go to a classical, it's like, I know this much. Veritas means truth. Truly, truly, I say to you. He, He doubles it up. Truly, truly. In other words, I ain't messing around here. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you what is right. And so when we come to living truth, one of the things we need to embrace about it is that it is right. 
Truth is right. It separates out right and wrong. Secondly, my generation was always asking the question, or is asking the question, is it relevant? This is the, the in the generation of the boomers, this was, this was the key thing. And it's interesting, Jesus says these words in Matthew 7 in his teaching. This comes right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and who puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. Another way, it's, way to put this is, does it work? If I put these principles into my life, does it work? And the simple answer to that is yes. Try it. If you and I will choose to put the principles of God's truth, of his word, into our life, we will find that they are incredibly relevant across the board in terms of your relationships, in terms of your work, in terms of your vocation, in terms of, uh, you know, just all kinds of areas, both internally and externally in your life, it's relevant. The generation that followed us, us being the boomers, me, the Gen X generation, the question became, is it real? I need to know, I need to experience this. Is it experiential? Can I, can I take this home and, and, and will, I mean, does it, does it, how does it impact and affect my life? And, and, and I need to know and feel this reality. Is it reality? Is it real? Well, Jesus says in John 8, he says to the Jews who believe in him, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then in verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, there is a verifiable reality that you can experience in your life that is transformational. So I know that it is true because I am experiencing the reality of that truth changing my life. I think that's a bit of what Eric's going to get at in the Life of Joy course. He's going to talk about the reality, how that even in the midst of whatever circumstances, there's a reality that we can experience a reality of joy, a reality of freedom. The truth will set you free. Okay? Everybody tracking so far? We're good? All right. So, now we get to your guys' generation, all right? The millennial generation. And the question around truth in your generation is, is it relational? Does it make sense in the context of the relationships in which I'm living my life with others? Is it something, is this truth authentic relationally with the people with whom I'm interacting? Well, Jesus has these very interesting words, which you know, perhaps... I think you've probably heard them. He says this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, the essence of truth, Jesus is saying here, is in the context of a relationship with me. Not simply in the context of 
a set of principles and rules and regulations. But in the context of a relationship with a living person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now here's where I want to I'm just going to take a moment to, to bring some application around this because I think, I think it's pretty important that we understand this because as part of my work, as I was talking, you know, my work for my dissertation was about building an intercultural church and part of that I was thinking about intergenerational because a lot of times people are talking past one another. saying it's either right or it's wrong it's a fairly simple equation either two plus two equals four or it doesn't but the millennial generation is saying whoa 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 wait a minute though we need to talk about this in the context does this truth that you are espousing this thing that you are so dogmatic about what about my friend and how it impacts them Right? And so suddenly, you're talking past each other rather than to each other. Is it relevant? Is it real? Every generation is doing this. And so some of the issues that we're, are being discussed culturally around us, where it feels like there's an enormous amount of confusion, Part of that confusion is related to people having different conversations with one another or not having conversation with one another. So part of what we want to grasp here this morning, and, and is everybody, you still hanging with me? Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to talk academic. I'm trying to talk practical, but this is, you know, I think, this feels really important to me, okay? I hope it feels important to you too. But, you see, the fact of the matter is, is that living truth is right, relevant, real, and relational. So I can hold on to my dogma, whatever that is, that I know is right, but if I have no context of how that is uh, being worked out in relationship with people around me, then I'm no longer speaking the truth in love. I'm simply battering people with truth, which does not then translate into relational life and health. However, if all I am is if all truth is only relational and it only has to do with how it, you know, and I'm, I'm, all I'm thinking about is the effect of that upon my friend or coworker or spouse or, or child or whatever it is or, or other student in my school or whatever, all of those things. And if I have no sense of orientation about what is right or wrong, then truth simply becomes completely and utterly simply situational and relative. And if it's all relative, then ultimately truth becomes irrelevant. Okay? So somehow, and Jesus did this beautifully. Think about how he interacted with the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery. I mean, he wasn't afraid to step into relationship with those people. Right? He was willing to do that. And he spoke the truth in love. He says, to the woman caught in adultery, well, who is it that, you know, those of you that, you know, haven't sinned, do you cast the first stone? Okay, and we love to hear that. Oh, yes, okay, so we can't, we, 
We certainly can't judge anything, being right or wrong, but then Jesus says, now go and sin no more. He didn't excuse her sin. He didn't tell her, oh, it's okay. I know your childhood and all that, you know, blah, blah, blah. All right? He calls it what it is. He's straight, but he's real. He's relevant. He's relational, and he's right. Okay? This is critical that we discover this skill together. Here's why I'm spending as much time on this today as I am because I think somehow, and I don't, believe me, I don't claim to have gotten it all yet and figured out how to do this, but I do know that somehow, some way, the church of Jesus Christ in this culture needs to rediscover this reality and understand that living truth is right, it is absolutely relevant, it is completely real, and it is utterly relational. That it's doing all of those things. And depending where your context is in these, you know, you can be a 70-year-old millennial, okay? I mean, just in terms of your thought processes. Don't, don't get hung up on that. But generally, you are going to gravitate towards one or another of these things. And often it's based on your age, your generation, what you were taught growing up. All right. Everybody okay? Everybody tracking? Okay, this is important. Because if we're saying we're standing for truth, we need to know what we're standing for. We're standing for that which is right, which is relevant, which is real, and which is relational. Okay? Now, secondly, what is active truth? It's living and active. What is this truth that is right, relevant, real, and relational? What, how... It's activating. What is it activating? How is it activating? What does it do? Well, let's go back to Hebrews 4 for a moment when it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. That's the first thing. It penetrates. So the first thing that this living truth does is it penetrates. So As the rain and snow, Isaiah 55, come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it blood and bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve and the purpose for which I sent it. So in other words, this active truth will accomplish. It actually works. The living truth does what it was sent to do. And the first thing that it is sent to do is it is sent to penetrate. Now, I've been thinking about this in the context of the message today. And I don't know if I'll be able to fully capture this, but try to hang with me, okay? So it's penetrating even to the the dividing of, of how, how does it put it here? It says it penetrates even dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow it's going down right to the marrow of our bones right into the marrow of our bones well i think bone marrow is kind of critical for our life right i mean it's it's there's the nourishment flows there and all of that right so part of what well let's let's look at this scripture john 5 He says, very truly, this is the verily, verily, truly, truly, I'm going to tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. So here's what I want to 
focus for a moment your heart and attention on. The penetrating, as far as I'm seeing it and reading it, at least at, at this point in Revelation for me, is that it penetrates right to the core issue of life and death. The Word of God, the living Word of God, the, the, the purpose for which Jesus and the thing that it accomplishes is to bring and make dead people live. It penetrates right to the... It goes to the one who has the sentence of death upon them because they have the bone cancer of, 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 of sin. And I'm not talking about physical bone cancer. I'm talking about spiritually. They have the... The sin is right there in the marrow of who they are. And the Word of God comes and it penetrates to the very core In order to bring life, Jesus came to make dead people live. That's the power of this Word of God. It brings life. It penetrates. It is discerning go on in the Hebrews passage again, Hebrews 4, it says it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Ooh. It judges. The Word of God judges. I don't know. That's not very 21st century politically correct. But it judges. It discerns. It goes. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we much must give. In Acts chapter 8, there's this story where Peter and John, the apostles, are out and they're, they're preaching and Incredible stuff is happening and says, Peter and John placed their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, and this is Simon the sorcerer. He's, he's sort of some sort of, you know, what we would say in common parlance, a, a shaman or a witch doctor of some kind. He, when he saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And the response comes back pretty direct. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I can see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. I don't know. Have you ever had this experience? I have. You all are probably much more spiritual than I am, so you don't have this happen to you. But I have this happen to me. There are times where the word of the Lord comes into my life, and it cuts and it reveals motives and attitudes in me that I go, ooh. Ouch. Mm. Really? The Word of God judges, it discerns, it goes, it lays bare. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from His sight. You ain't going to be able to hide from Him. You may put on a good front before everyone around you, but the Word of God, it, it goes down deep. And it discerns and shows what's right, what's wrong, what's real, what's false. Right? 
That's what it does. That's what the Word of God is about. The Word of God doesn't always make you feel good. Sometimes the Word of God hurts so good. It hurts so good. Because He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. So His Word comes. And boom. This is the living word of God. This is what it means to be living. And this is what it means to be active. Active means that it penetrates. Active means that it discerns. Active means it takes dead people and makes them live. Active means that it takes broken people and makes them whole. It transforms. It changes. Aren't you glad? I don't know. I'm really happy about that. Even though it's painful sometimes, I'm really happy about that. All right, let's bring it home. Understanding that active truth then has the double edge of judgment and mercy. It reveals our rebellion and brokenness and reorients us towards life and wholeness. That's the double edge, the double edge of judgment and mercy. The judgment is, is it says things as, it, as they are. The mercy says, but I can make it different. <laughs> I'm glad for both. We live in a culture that wants to hear all about the mercy. But we need to understand that there's no mercy if there isn't judgment. The two are melded, forged together. You can't separate them. And they're both good news. Get it? You get it? All right. So bringing it home. How can we become true to the word and alive in the spirit? How in this house, how in my life? How, how do I become true to the word? How do I become alive in the spirit? How is... How does this process take place? Simple things. We're, we're running quickly to, to home. First of all, submit to the truth. Submit to the truth. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. John 14, 22 and 24. I think that's pretty clear. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Submission means to bring ourselves and our lives under his leadership and into alignment with him. So, the first step of becoming true to the word and alive in the spirit is to submit to him. Submit to the truth. Even when you don't want to. Secondly, is walking then in that truth. In 2 John 4, the Apostle John writes, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. Or as the Apostle James said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Don't simply hear this. Begin to walk in it. So, so get your life oriented around the truth and then begin to walk in it. Don't merely listen. Do what it says. Walk in the truth. And then, stand for the truth. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to stand for the truth. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. And he goes through the whole list of the armor of God. And at the end of that list, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the truth of God, this living, active truth of God, this double-edged sword. Take it and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With all this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all 
the Lord's people. Stand for the truth. Stand. Submit. Walk. If you still have a Bible open, turn back to Hebrews 4 for a moment. We're going to go to Hebrews 4. This is the scripture that's been kind of guiding us as Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, where the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That particular have to understand the context, however, and that's what we're going to close with this morning is the context. What is the writer of Hebrews getting at? What's the context for what he's saying? The context, we have to go back to actually Hebrews chapter 3. The reference is not right, but the scripture is right up here. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, all the way. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray, so they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end. The confidence, the conviction, we we indeed hold our original conviction firmly. sermon points available here. Wake you up for a moment. Can anybody tell me what the writer of Hebrews is referring to here? Okay, we know as your notes tell you at the bottom of your Bible there that he's quoting from Psalm chapter 95. Okay? But what is the psalmist talking about? What event in the life of the Israelites Right, and why the Exodus, the 40 years in the desert, what happened? Why the 40 years? Rebellion, but okay, at, at what point? Where was the rebellion? What was the rebellion that created that? They were told to go in, but they were afraid. She got the sermon points today, okay? So, that's right. Numbers 13, the spies go into the land. They come back, 10 say, run away, run away. Joshua and and Caleb say, go in, go in. The people grumbled, rebelled, said, why did you lead us here? We're going to die. And they stepped back from the promise and purposes of God. And in that rebellion, in that place they entered into a season of wandering, of testing because they did not receive the truth that had been spoken and that's why he says today if you hear his voice do not that's a, a sobering God's been speaking to you, perhaps, about some things. Today, if you've been hearing his voice, if you're hearing God speak to you, don't harden your heart. Come to him. Submit to him.
begin to walk in the truth, stand in the truth. I'm going to invite the worship team to please come on up. Just before the message, we sang the church's one foundation that wanted to establish for us this morning, even as we were preparing our hearts for the word, that foundation that we stand upon and the truth that we stand upon is Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that more in depth even next week when we talk about our Christ-centered vision. But this morning as we stand here, I want to, okay, in a, in a culture that's at the crossroads and the signposts have fallen down, can we please set up a signpost again? Say, this is the way, walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6.16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. here at Bethel. It's, it's, it's absolutely essential to our identity as his children to understand his truth, have that truth living in us. It's vital for our destiny for us to be able to go and proclaim and speak the truth in love. We need to understand this living act of truth. So I don't really have a fancy altar call here. You just stand with me together. And let's make a corporate declaration of this standing for truth today. If there's something in particular that God's, the Spirit of God is speaking to you, I'm going to invite you to come to this altar. Maybe just place it before him. As you already heard earlier, we have our welcome lunch today. Anybody who's new, anybody who's young, college students, young adults, you are invited. Pastor Ben's house, it's really close by. I'll have plenty of room to take some people. My wife will be able to take some people. If you need, you know, if you need rides today, just find somebody and say, help, I need a ride today to get there. We will, uh, we'll get you to, uh, to Pastor Ben's today for some great food and fellowship and time together really encourage you to come. It's a good time. Always a good time. Just before we turn our attention to that meal, and there's, oh, by the way, there's uh, maps on the back table, so you can pick one up if you need a map to get there. It's very simple. It's very close. So. Let's just open our hands if we could. Jesus, as we sing this song of declaration in Christ alone, We'd like this, Lord, to not just be words up on the screen, but we'd like it to be written upon our hearts. So we ask you, who are the living truth, you who are the active truth, come and penetrate, and today bring us from death to life, bring us from brokenness to wholeness. Jesus, come. Come, I cry out. Jesus, not just here embodied in this building this morning, but Lord God, for the places we're going to go this week, maybe even into our homes today or our dorm rooms or campuses or workplaces, neighborhoods, God, teach us how to walk in your truth, to stand for your truth, to live in this place with We need your help. We confess we need your help today. Help us, Lord. Help us. We need you. Help us in this 
2013, oh God. Help us. We need you. Help us. Jesus. Mm. All right, here we go. Let's sing it together as our declaration this morning. Here we go. Just open your hands if you would. Lord Jesus, you who are the living, eternal, active truth, thank you for speaking your truth into our lives, even this hour, this day. Lord, we receive your word with gladness, and Lord, we pray that it will fall upon good soil, that will retain and hear and will raise up a harvest of righteousness in us and in this house. And now with hands open, I pray that you will be filled yet again today afresh with the immeasurable love of God the Father, with the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours. As you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations, go with the banner of his favor over your lives. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love and goodness and mercy will chase you down every day of your life for his glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. You can stay and worship. Go pick up your kids. Come and join us for...